Welcome to Sounds Familiar, a podcast where we discuss two pieces of media that share themes, plot points, or overarching ideas. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to keep up to date with our upload schedule, news, and discussions. Take your seat, grab your popcorn, and silence your cell phones now. Please enjoy the show. sounds familiar. My name is Caleb, and I'm not a computer nerd. I prefer to be called a hacker. My name's Stephanie, and I'm not going to waste my time arguing with a man who's lining up to be a hot lunch. My name's Justin, and boy do I hate being right all the time. (laughs) I love how, if you don't remember these quotes from the movies, how completely unplaceable they are. (laughs) 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 Like... (laughs) Um, well, except for maybe mine. I don't know. <laughs> lot, lot of, lots of people become lunch in these movies, so maybe that, that That's could work. True. But <laughs> Steven Spielberg has a thing. For... <laughs> he's more a, he's thing, a... maybe? <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to explore that any further. Stevie, you want to tell week, us anything? <laughs> um, this, uh, this is our first episode of Director's Month. Or what I'm calling Auteur April. <laughs> uh, patent pending. Um, <laughs> so we, yeah, this month we're going to be um, uh, we're going to be doing kind of a, I guess, a loose discussion on, I guess it's going to be five different directors, um, one for each week. Uh, and we're going to still kind of be doing what we've been doing before, which is comparing two movies that have some stuff in common, but specifically through the lens of like uh, two movies from a particular director. Um, and I think, of course, this week uh, they pair together pretty well, like thematically. That's not always going to be the case necessarily. So we're just going to be talking about, like, I don't know, trying to learn about the director's style uh, just from from watching a couple of their movies. Uh, of course, yeah, in this case, it's easy to draw some conclusions, but maybe it won't always be. And, of course, we are starting with our man's Steven Spielberg, <laughs> which how do you even how do you even begin to tackle Steven Spielberg's filmography? Uh I don't know, but... You pick his two most iconic summer blockbusters, yeah, that's how. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're going to be talking about a couple of my favorites, I'm going to assume our favorite Spielberg movies, which are also some of his most famous, so no surprise there. Um, I don't know if we said it yet, Jaws and Jurassic Park, the, the J's. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, movies... We're going to be moving on to the K's next week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does he have any K movies? Clo- close no. encounter. No. <laughs> it was a crossover close. with killer clowns from outer space. Yeah. Um, uh, movies in which large animals eat humans and also some other stuff is going on. And there are themes. Yeah, there are there are actually themes to be had. People here. get eaten and capitalism is bad. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes um steven spielberg refused to just let us enjoy movies where people get eaten by a big reptile slash fish and insisted that we learn something along the way look let's be honest i wouldn't enjoy these movies near as much if they weren't so heavy with theme and <laughs> uh, i don't know really good screenwriting yeah oh uh, yeah screenwriting directing I agree with you guys, but I'm also very excited for Godzilla vs. King Kong coming out this week. And one of the reviews that I read said, quote, 
light on theme and uh, human story focuses on the title. And I was like, that, yeah, give me two hours of oh, that. Oh, good. It's everything Godzilla <laughs> King of Monsters wasn't. Oh, uh, well, you know, I think there's a, there's a balance to be had. Of course, in the case of something like Godzilla versus King Kong, which sounds funny coming out of my mouth, um, <laughs> the... I think the understanding there is uh, that the draw is the is the big big, big monsters smash each other. Right. See, it's it, it, it's funny. The like the two most recent Godzilla movies, too much talky, not enough punchy. But the reason I like these two movies, lots of talky, little punchy, but like they save it. But right? but but I would argue that one of the interesting things about the Godzilla franchise, which is, again, not a sentence I ever thought I would say, <laughs> is that it seems to have such a variety of entries. And mm, it's most of them are of the Monster Punchies variety. So I think there's nothing wrong with a couple, like, Shin Godzilla is, from what I understand, probably the the most highbrow one, and from my understanding, one of the better ones. Well, it's that, the only one I really have any interest in watching. Um, that and the original one... Um... Are the most theme heavy, but the franchise as a yeah. whole, like they they have their moments, like Godzilla versus Hedorah, I believe, is an environmental message. Anyway, this isn't about Godzilla. <laughs> this is about Steven Spielberg. Well, yeah, my point was just that there's there's room for different types of stories within a franchise. Um, of course, Jurassic Park and Jaws. Now that I say that, both technically are franchises since they both have multiple sequels. But we uh, we don't really talk about the Jaws sequels. Uh, I don't they know don't anything count. about those. And they're bad. They're all bad. I don't like to talk about the Jurassic Park sequels. I have a special place in my heart for the Jurassic Park sequels. It's a dark, lonely place that I don't look at much, but... <laughs> uh, we might get into that a little bit. Um, so, do we want to go ahead and just jump into Jaws? Uh, no, and thank our experiences? you. <laughs> <laughs> just jump on in there. <laughs> just... Uh, just right down hole. Uh, um, yeah. Also Justin. worth noting before we before we jump into these, uh, these are not only his big summer blockbusters; these are both based on novels. Um, so these are Steven Spielberg point. adaptations of novels as summer blockbusters. That's true. But they yeah, I I always forget Jaws is also based on a novel. Yeah, mm. I don't know much about the author Peter Benchley, um, and I honestly had no idea Jaws was a novel until rewatching it this time around. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, I know that Jurassic Park is based on a book by Michael Crichton that Caleb uh, says is good. It is one of my it. favorite books. Oh, okay. Um, but I always forget it about Jaws. Um, so, yeah, uh, adaptations, which a lot of movies are, like, even movies that you didn't know were adaptations a lot of times turn out to be. Mm-hmm. You never know, man. Um, okay, so who wants to go first with their experience with Jaws? <laughs> Okay, me. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> Caleb, like, patted my shoulder like, it's time. Um, I, this was my second time seeing the movie. The first time I saw it was a few years ago. I want to say probably late years of high school, early years of college, somewhere around then. The time in which I saw a lot of movies for the first time because I was really, <laughs> like, getting excited by the fact that I could watch things uh with questionable legality on the internet um (laughs) it was very exciting for me a whole new world opened up actually i didn't watch this one questionably on the internet it came on tv but (laughs) it's fine um and i thought it was all right 
I didn't get that much out of it. I was just kind of like, huh, that was, that was okay. A lot of talking. <laughs> Less talk, more shark, uh, you know, <laughs> was my thoughts at the time. That was the sequel's motto. Yeah. <laughs> this second time watching it, I really, really liked it. I got so much more out of it this time. I think because I, like, actually paid attention and yeah. watched with subtitles. Um, and I was like, you, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I that man talks so much. And the stuff he says is like, what? <laughs> Half the time. But, um, yes, I, I understood it so much better this time. Um, really enjoyed it. Um, I realized, uh, you know... Like, oh, big light bulb moment. There's a lot more going on here than just a man who hates a fish. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's really three men who hate a fish. Just kidding. Um, and, uh, yeah, very good experience, and I'm excited to talk about it. Caleb? Uh, the first time I saw Jaws was two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes. It's not me this time. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> to be yeah. perfectly honest... Uh, I had very little interest in watching this movie before we had, before I was told I have to watch it. Um, <laughs> I did not Wait, expect. Hold gunpoint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, like, I, now you're going to watch this or else. Like, I wasn't against it, but I, I wasn't expecting much from it. Um, the most I've seen of Jaws was, uh, the clips they would play over and over again during the Jaws special on Mythbusters. Um, <laughs> so basically just Brody saying, smile, you son of a bitch. But like, probably I've seen it enough times to be like the feature length of the full movie. Um, I really, really, really liked it. It was very good. I enjoyed it a lot. It's, um, it's easy to yes. forget how good it is because as we've talked about multiple times on this podcast, these cultural juggernauts like become so memefied that you you they kind of get reduced down to their most basic memorable elements. And but then when you actually watch it, you're like, oh, the connective tissue is really good. <laughs> like yeah. that's what it's all about. Um, Justin, what about you? Uh, so I've seen this movie a lot. Um, uh, weirdly enough, like as a kid, I watched this like. Uh, four or five times with my grandpa uh when i was a kid um <laughs> but but much like stephanie i'm glad i rewatched it this time around because i was always a fan of the movie but it was mostly because like ooh, the shark movie uh <laughs> but now i'm like oh this is like this has things to say and it's it's done done very very well and uh yeah this movie uh this movie fucking rules I'm actually kind of surprised that I didn't watch it as a kid because, um, as we'll get into later, I did watch Jurassic Park as a kid, and I know that my dad likes this movie, um, and maybe he probably correctly assumed that maybe this would not be, like, the best movie to show me as a kid, that it might scare me a little bit, but, um, I don't know, like, me and my dad always have kind of, have a shared love of, like, large scary creatures that eat people I thought, <laughs> such a weird way to put it but he used to always get these books about like man-eating tigers and panthers uh <laughs> far off in the jungles of wherever and 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 bears and sharks and just all these scary creatures and i used to like read them voraciously all these like horrifically graphic accounts of like real life attacks that happened to people <laughs> so <laughs> honestly some of that was and like real photos too like you get you get a glimpse of some photos like that in jaws yeah. the movie just like horrifying stuff and <laughs> once again i'm like why the hell was i reading that but i don't uh, know dude speaking of <laughs> speaking of uh gruesome imagery i yeah. am shocked every time 
I remember that this film was rated PG uh, when it released. The uh, PG seventies and eighties were a godless yeah. wild time. <laughs> Unruh. <laughs> yeah, PG Unruh. was basically like. Yeah, I mean, I guess kids could watch this and parents go with them. Well, PG was basically anything that wasn't a porn, but also wasn't, like, G. Right, anything not explicitly aimed at kids that also isn't explicitly, like, a slasher. Yeah, Yeah. that was basically... It was was wild. And then, of course... It was almost a binary. Almost, yeah. (laughs) Like, to take little Timmy or not to take little Timmy. And if it was PG, it was like, uh, take little Timmy at your own risk, I guess. Take little Timmy, but be prepared for a conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah, the the idea of a movie like this being being PG today, or, or even PG-13, kind of might be a stretch. Um, <laughs> just some of the photos of, like, real-life shark attacks alone, I was like, that's some that's mu- somehow much worse than I, any of this other stuff. I did not like that. <laughs> no, 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 neither did I. Um, anyways, I am, yeah. I am a big fan of sharks. Yeah. I like them. I liked them a lot as a kid. Um... Uh, I'm planning on going shark diving potentially within the next year, um, but shark attack photos, stuff. Mm, well, it's, mm. yeah. I, I guess we can go ahead and talk about that. I, I love this movie, um, but it is very specifically blamed for um, the way sharks are treated by oh, the absolutely. general public. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because it may, like, shark attacks do happen, but they are, they are much less common than one would think by how the media uh portrays them so uh Uh, sharks are good love your local shark i think i think that the way you phrased that (laughs) whether intentionally or not was correct though because you said this movie is blamed for this stuff which i think is the correct way to say it because i i don't think that it is the fault of the movie at all. Right. Because, no. in fact, the movie specifically points out this is not just some shark. This is, like, some sent-from-God-or-the-devil killer huge right. shark. Right. The movie like, is not saying all sharks are monsters. The movie is saying this shark is a monster. Right. And I think it's it's not at all the fault of the movie or Steven Spielberg or no. whoever wrote the book. It is very much the fault of... People being stupid, panicky creatures and seeing something in a fake movie of all things, like <laughs> a fake looking shark animatronic and just mm. oh, just completely disproportionately placing all their fears on on the real life equivalent or not equivalent, but the assumed equivalent of that. It's just kind of kind of a shameful thing on our part as on, on, on the other side of the coin dinosaur themed uh theme theme parks had a horrible time after Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> they had to completely call off the gene splicing program um i'm sure yeah, that's but... still going on somewhere uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. no that's uh the the character of matt hooper um is the the antithesis is the antithesis of that ideology. The man literally in the movie says, yeah, I love sharks. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know he was a character in this movie. The only characters I knew going into this movie were Brody, Quint, and there was a mayor. That's all I knew. <laughs> oh no, Hooper's my favorite. I, I had I really no like idea him. he was in it. Let me, okay, yeah. I'll go ahead and say this. I was waiting the entire movie for him to die because <laughs> the only thing I knew the only thing I had seen from the movie 
is like the very last scene of the climax and Brody is the only person there. So I just assumed <laughs> everyone else on the boat died before that scene. My man Super scene. is just chilling under the water He's that whole time. <laughs> he was like, you know um, what? My work here is done. I'm going to stay down here where it's safe. <laughs> I like uh, the only one of them on the boat that tells a tragic story uh, is the one who dies a horrible graphic death oh. on screen. <laughs> We're gonna, I'm going to talk about that later because that's, that's a whole discussion point. Yeah. But first, allow me to be pedantic. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Both of these movies do a thing where it takes a real-world detail and, like, alters it a bit for the sake of story, right? Um, example, in Jurassic Park, velociraptors are neither six feet tall nor found in Montana. They were about three feet tall and found in Mongolia. There is an actual raptor about six feet tall found in Montana called, um, I think it's a Utah raptor. I could be wrong. But they changed the name because Velociraptor sounds way cooler. (laughs) And Hooper's speech about why he became a marine biologist, he says his little dinghy when he was a kid off the port of Cape Canaveral or whatever was attacked by a thresher shark. Thresher sharks... (laughs) are pelagic sharks, meaning they live primarily in the deep ocean and are not known for attacking people. I know that's not the point that I'm not supposed to focus on that at all. No, we're glad that you know about sharks. I'm supposed to overlook that for the sake of the story. I'm going to implement a soundboard into my edits and Homer Simpson going, (laughs) No! I encourage you to do that, please. Oh my god. Anyway, that's my tangent. I know neither of those details are ultimately important to the story, right? Yeah. Right? I, but. Well, now these movies are ruined. Both trash. I can never watch Zero them again. God. It's like they didn't care at all. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's fair. I mean, because so much of what the movies concentrate on is scientific. Right. Uh, largely outdated yeah. also, because yeah. he ref- Hooper refers to sharks as scups, because apparently, um, back in the day, all sharks were kind of lumped under, under the same family branch, um... That the scientific name has like the, has scup in it, and then you know after the seventies they were branched out a lot more, but that's why he uses it as a general term for shark, which we wouldn't use now. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> so Caleb, see, this is why this is why uh, what's his fuck Hooper reminded me of Caleb a little bit because he's like nerdy and sassy and he has a beard. And like and glasses, yeah, and glasses. I, I don't know. I just got I got a little bit of Caleb energy from him, like a little bit more nervous energy than Caleb has. But like other other aspects, definitely were were Calebby. And I could also picture Caleb not really liking uh, Quint at all and yeah. <laughs> not getting along, which is if, exactly what happens in the movie. If Caleb drank five cups of coffee after not sleeping <laughs> for a whole night. <laughs> There's Hooper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I and I like um, th- this movie. It, it, as Caleb was kind of saying, is really short on characters, but I do really like kind of the dynamic that those three end up having because they're they're all quite different, but they're sort of being forced to work together in this extremely small, tense environment with an extremely high stakes. <laughs> well, mission. then why don't we discuss? 
the characters and their interactions and how their relationships grow and change since we're already on that point. Well, yeah, um, good. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not until at least halfway into the movie, or approximately halfway into the movie, that we're done with all of the talking and the people dying and just we get on the boat <laughs> to go kill stuff. a shark. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that is the second half of the movie, is three dudes on a boat trying to kill a fish. Dudes rocking um, right? <laughs> 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 Just guys being dudes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I really liked Hooper until they got on the boat. As soon as Hooper started, like, having to interact with Quint and uh, listen and do what he had to do, what Quint told him to do, Hooper just turned into this fucking man-child. Literally just making faces at him and flicking him um, off no, behind No, I was his on back. his side. I, no, I can see I, what you're saying, but I still, I still sided with him more than I, I did with Quint. Quint did not do enough at that point, had not done enough for me to, like, agree with Hooper's hatred of him. I was like, <laughs> dude's being a giant baby. Mm, uh, I don't know. <laughs> he, this he is this man's ship. Know. You do he what didn't he have says. Strong, he did have strong, but I'm not going to do it. Energy. <laughs> exactly. And I hated that. It was needlessly defined. No, that would be that would be me though. I I can't I can't I can't stand a loud rough around the edges man. I I love that kind of man in a movie, but to be around just don't talk to me like I mean, could I put it aside in order to kill a man-eating shark? Yes, probably, but that would also make me even more angry at the situation. And that's, that's, I feel like that's kind of the point, though. Like, he he is willingly, as a matter of fact, not only willingly, he fought to be on the ship knowing how things were going to go. And then when he gets there, he's like, well, meh. I'm like, (laughs) put it aside. It's like, you're on this man's ship. You're not, like, having drinks near him at a TGI Fridays. (laughs) Two different situations. (laughs) Yeah. No, it, it yeah, it is a good dynamic though, and you need the conflict because it's like you you know you have the old sea dog who's like got a dark past and is hard drinking or whatever and has no respect for you know rich boy intellectuals. And then on the other side, you, you know you have Hooper who is like very much like the the scientific mind of it, and he's much younger and maybe doesn't have as much respect for like the older generation. Um, and then you have Brody, who's, like, the everyman, and probably, like, the least asshole of anyone <laughs> here, who is just like, oh, yeah. man, I'm just trying to keep people safe. Can we, get, can we go Stuck get the Stuck in the shirt? middle with you starts playing. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. <laughs> um, I do like um, how, at first, you think Quint is just going to be some kook, but then up to the point where his hubris catches up to him, he has proven right Right, like he is shown to be competent, and he knows what he's talking about, and he knows what he's doing. Um, like he's when they first sailor. get the shark on the line, and he's just dead silent, slowly latching himself into the harness, doesn't even say anything to Brody. Mm-hmm. I loved that scene. I love mm-hmm. that sequence. Um, and he's just he. It's not until the moment that you know they blow the engines that something bad happens because of his direction. Up to that point, it's every time he says something and Hooper pushes back, Quint ends up being right. Yeah. Because um, they're so, in his world. Right. And so I like that they are, he is very quickly shown to not just be some kook. This man right. is competent. He does one thing and he does it well. Right. And it's he, he does end up kind of indirectly causing his own demise mm-hmm. 
due to a, a series of factors that I'll be honest, I didn't always completely understand because a lot of it was like boat nautical stuff yes. and like stuff to do yeah. with the fish that I was like, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what caused this to happen. Like, well, I want to touch back on that mm. in a minute. Okay. Um, but something interesting about the dynamic is Brody is new in town relatively and Hooper is very new in town. He's only been there a day or two. So they don't know Quint, but the rest of the town does. They know that he's competent, which is why he can show up at a town hall meeting and say, I'll catch the shark for $10,000, and they don't immediately laugh him out. Yeah, they actually kind of have to go, ugh, maybe he's got a point. <laughs> right, because they know that if anyone can do it, it's Quint. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Brody and Hooper don't know that. They have to be shown. They have to learn it firsthand. Um, to be fair, Brody was just like, Let's give him the money. Just do it. Yeah, just yeah. give him the money. Just put yeah. it to an end. <laughs> See, Brody is an interesting character because he doesn't... He is kind of a static character, which uh, is something we were talking about a little bit in regards to Jurassic Park, which... Whatever. I'll get into that later. Um, But he he's a static character, but in a way that serves the plot pretty well because... He like he sees from very early on what needs to be done, but his his kind of quest is to get other people to see it. Yeah. You know, and to try to make it happen. Like hmm. he he gets he gets strong armed out of his like out of his gut feeling, his convictions. Uh but in a way that I feel like he rationalized it to himself. He's like, Okay, what if they're right? Like, I'm gonna mm. cost this whole town their livelihood, like uh, yeah, it, 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 he's confusing in the beginning of the movie to me, um, because he gives he pushes back a little, but seems willing to buckle to the mayor. But then in the like after someone else dies, that's when he's finally like, okay, like laying the hard line. Was, but at the same time, yeah. he didn't like give up. He like militantly watched the beach. <laughs> right. He doesn't. He, he does. He's still time. new in town. He yeah. does not have the political capital to push his weight around right. at all. That yeah. felt very realistic to me. Honestly, that seemed like I could kind of re relate to that. Like on a very abstract level, <laughs> I've never been a police chief. I've never been a middle-aged man, and I've never gone after a man-eating shark. But uh, I don't think. And I've, I've never been to Boston either. in the fall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, but the way he was like, he was kind of cowed by by um people not listening to him, the people in power. And so he was still kind of trying to do his part, like, under the radar and being like, well, maybe I can manage things on the sidelines. Yeah. It's fine. I'll keep it together. And I really like that scene that really highlights kind of his paranoia, like, when he is at the beach and, like, no one else is feeling it, but he's just sitting there, like, completely tense, like, watching everything that's happening. It focuses on each person that goes in the water. Mm -hmm. I was like, God, that feels so real. Like, and no one else is doing anything. Like, obviously, everyone else is like, oh, it's fine. And he's just like, it's coming. It's coming. Oh, God. Uh, Here we go. <laughs> also, man, Steven, out of all the people you could have killed in that scene, why did it have to be the little boy and the dog? I know. <laughs> fucking brutal man i i'm glad it's once again it sounds horrible to say this when you you see the shark okay you don't see the shark kill the kid you see the, the splash and you see the blood like i'm glad it didn't show anything like that for the dog i i'm not trying to say that it's worse to kill I the think dog there might I'm be just... a cut of the movie with it oh well i don't want to see that um, i don't want to uh, do justin that. are you aware of there being different cuts of this movie because i, I listened not... to a 
a podcast the other day talking about Jaws that had a scene that I know for a fact I did not see. Um, maybe I need to explore the special features on my two-disc steelbook <laughs> anniversary edition. <laughs> <laughs> right, and both of the hosts, um, we might as well go ahead and plug the, um, the podcast. Um, it's, uh, so one of my favorite podcasts is You're Wrong About, um, which is a great podcast kind of like examining just like various uh, urban legends, like moral panics, news stories of yesteryear, things that are like remembered the wrong way. And it's really good if you're into that kind of thing. One of the hosts has a side co- podcast called Why Are Dads? Question mark. Like why are men, but it's like why are dads? Um, and it's <laughs> the, the whole first podcast. Episode was about Jaws, yeah, right? the whole podcast is talking about quote unquote dad movies and sort of like examining like why dads love them and why dads are the way that they are through the lens of pop culture. Really fascinating. Anyways, they have a great episode on Jaws. It's their very first one, actually. Um, I would definitely recommend it. it. Really made me think about the movie in a lot more detail. All that is just to say, uh, both of the hosts seem to have an understanding of that scene being there. So it's like. What are we missing? We didn't yeah. see that scene. So, uh, do you mind telling me what the scene? Yeah, what, is? what did they? Say? Was it a scene where Quint yeah, was um, chumming or something, and he was talking about? It says something about Quint cutting open the shark and uh, throwing it into the water, and other sharks coming and eating the remains, and talking about how people like to see that. Um, <laughs> Justin doesn't seem to have seen this either. Oh, what? What is the truth? No, and no. Uh, out of the times, granted, a lot of the times I watched it as a kid, uh, it was on TV, um, and it wasn't. That scene's not on the Blu-ray that I watched, the and movie. I have the anniversary oh. steelbook. <laughs> I we're just gonna have to put a pin in I'm that gonna one have to then, do some research. I don't know where. Yeah, I have no idea what that's from. All right. uh, for the for the ease of our audience, I am going to do a quick Google on this, but I'm going to use my phone instead of my loud ass keyboard that makes a guest appearance on about a third of our episodes. <laughs> While Justin's googling that, mm. I'd like to go back to the characters mm. um, and the transition of the evolution of their relationship um, on uh, once they're on board the Orca. Um, you know, as we were saying, Hooper and Quint are quite, they butt heads and Brody's just kind of caught in the middle of it. Mm. Then there's a key scene when they're eating dinner, or it's after they've eaten dinner, I don't remember, and they've all been drinking, and Quint and Hooper start sharing their scars, um, trying to one-up the other. And like this weird contest of manliness, and yet they see, this is the first time they seem to be getting along. Like they right, seem this to be is the first thing time. where they're like, we can butt heads on an even ground here. Yeah, um, it's it's just a friendly competition, mm-hmm. um, and they start Dude's to like see and understand each other a little bit more. Yeah, um, I, uh, I've never done the let's compare scars thing because I would just be like, you see these scars on my knuckles. It's from when I was playing humans versus zombies at my community college, and I got tripped, and I hit the pavement really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, that's great. This one on my chest is from the chicken pox when I was a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. No fun stories here. Uh, So, 
then in in that sequence we get a fantastic monologue the whole sequence is great yeah um and brody asks him what his particular scar is from and quint's whole demeanor changes and he says it it wasn't it used to be a tattoo that he had removed of the uss indianapolis and i went oh no that's awesome (laughs) because (laughs) i was aware of the the story of the uss indianapolis um prior to watching this movie and the realization that that was part of his backstory i was just just like that's perfect this is some brilliant like that must be a unique experience to like listen to that monologue for the first time actually already knowing what the the uss indianapolis uh incident was because i didn't like when i heard the monologue that was the first time i'd ever heard it a a few years ago i mean watching it and then after that i looked it up and i was like oh fuck (laughs) right because if you don't know that it's a real thing you could just very well believe that he was just making up a story right the fact that it's a real thing jesus christ it makes it hit so much harder um god what that entire scene um uh robert shaw and richard dreyfus uh kill it in that scene it is so fun to watch and so gripping um when quint makes that turn like you see the facial acting from robert shaw like you see that turn happen and how he's feeling oh my god it's it's one of the most captivating scenes in the movie if not the most yeah and because this is not a movie like this is a movie where there's a lot of talking but there isn't a lot of monologuing you know yeah like there Mm -hmm. isn't a lot of a character actually like getting into their feelings or their trauma or whatever right well we we do have multiple characters giving little speeches about why they are the way they are we never get one from brody there's not a lot of people talking about their feelings or... Yes. I just, it seemed remarkably insightful and slow-paced for a movie that has a very rapid pace otherwise. Especially yes. with the dialogue. You're right. The dialogue is remarkably chaotic. I made a note of that. I hate the scenes where there's a bunch of people all together because there's three or four people talking at the same time and they're all at the same audio level and I it's it's a horrible <laughs> cacophony. Spielberg, don't do that anymore. He I does don't it in like Jurassic it. Jurassic Park too. I, Lots of people I, talking at it's the same so time. chaotic. I hate it. It's a uh, just going back to the scene. It is such a beautiful way um, to kind of cap off the the rising action and bring us right into the very very long climax of this movie, which is where their boat breaks down it's to where the calm before the storm. Yes, it's it's so. God, it's so well done, because things, shit really hits the fan uh, right after that, and it doesn't slow down until uh, Bruce is dead. Right, and like, there's not a cut either. There's no time, there's no passage of time. Quint gives his monologue, they start singing a song, and then the shark starts ramming the ship while they're singing. Um, right? Uh... Yes. Okay. I did right? have a, I had a problem yeah, with... Yeah, it starts breaking, it starts breaking the, uh the hull of the ship yeah that's when they first take on water which is why the engines fail and everything i had a problem with that sequence because the shark starts ramming the ship and it's like boom 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 like one after another after another and the shark How? couldn't move that fast no it would have to ram the ship turn around or swim away turn around come back and ram again 
Shark doesn't have an arm to just sit there he and punch him. He was slapping it with his fins. <laughs> he was uh he was spitting the barrel at it. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> like Again. A pop gun. Not what I'm supposed to be thinking during that <laughs> sequence. Um No, I... it's a great sequence and Dustin. I really need everyone to take a second and imagine the shark spitting the barrel out, sucking it back in, spitting the barrel out. <laughs> Just in rapid succession. Oh my god. Um, yeah, no, that it, it's it's a good transition, and it it's of course the kind of transition that only really happens in movies because you know the narrative efficiency and everything. But it feels natural. I mean, it feels it feels like it makes sense. You know, like, we don't want to sit around and watch a bunch of nothing happen, and there's no need for a time skip. Like, it makes sense when they're out in the open water mm-hmm. that this thing could happen immediately after they were all talking. Yeah. Oh, fun fact, um, right after the shark starts ramming the ship and it's still dark outside, they run out onto the deck to look for the shark, um, and there's a shot of um brody with the sky behind him and a shooting star goes by (laughs) and uh it doesn't mean anything it was literally just a shooting star happened to be caught by the camera while they were rolling it was Um, a magical moment (laughs) right like i saw it and i was like i didn't imagine that did i right like that's not just a trick of the film and i googled it sure enough it's a whole thing that was the magic of the universe blessing him (laughs) that was the magic of cinema (laughs) (laughs) um Uh, to quote Stephanie, that's the power of love and magic, bitch. <laughs> Finding its way even into Jaws. Um, I noticed something. So Quint um, repeatedly sings an old sea shanty, uh, farewell and adieu, ye fair Spanish ladies. Um, and it's just kind of his thing, like, when he's done making a point. <laughs> he just starts singing He just it. starts singing it. Um, it's like, that's all I got to say about that. Um, and I noticed that it's also his leitmotif. Um, there was a point, oh, there was a scene where it was him in the cabin looking for something, like a shotgun or something. Um, and there was just an instrumental version of that song playing. I did not That was know. mixed into the score. Man, good wow. ear. Good ear, Caleb. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Williams. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I no, I did not notice that, but that's really cool because he does sing that a lot. Yeah, listen out for that next time you watch Jaws. I want to be someone who like sings something old and jaunty for emphasis. (laughs) Yeah, like every time time I exit a room, I'm gonna find one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, just a a sea shanty. Just like, come on, baby, let's do the (laughs) twist. Whenever you make a point (laughs) of argument. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna exit every room singing it's in his kiss <laughs> um, and then the rest of it just a couple interesting things I noticed um, during the climax um, well there was one point where I was like why aren't they bailing like they started bailing and then at one point they just kind of stopped and like watch the shark swim around for a bit. I'm like, what are you doing? What? What? <laughs> like, you, the, at one point, Brody literally pulls out the pump. Um, like he goes and gets the the bailing pump, and Quint and Hooper are like on the bridge and they're pushing the engines, and the deck is just filling up with water. And Brody's just kind of standing there, staring up at Quint. And I'm like, do something. <laughs> a man isn't a, a seaman. Um, 
Speaking of uh, uh, things that uh, you would... Speaking of semen... Um, I the... wish the audience could have seen Stephanie's face after she said that. <laughs> Most importantly, you've stopped laughing at the word semen. <laughs> and that's the sign of a true semen. Um, when Hooper is about to get in the shark cage and he's trying to spit on his mask, that's something you do to keep it from fogging up. Uh, right. You spit on it and you rub it in and you rinse it out a little and it keeps the mask from fogging. Oh, um, nice. And a foggy mask. he makes a point of saying that he's out of spit because he, he's dehydrated, I guess, and it's been an intense couple hours. Um, and when he gets in, the, there's something else that happens. Not only is he out of spit and unable to defog his mask, Brody takes his glasses. So when he gets in the shark cage, there are two things hindering his vision. And he has to do something that requires an intense amount of precision. Namely, stabbing the shark in the shark's mouth. Oof. Um, yeah. And they're just I mean, two really it's subtle... it big mouth. It does. It does. It's a pretty large target. Um, but it requires a lot of finesse. And there are two things, uh, you know, messing with his vision. Right. Can you not wear glasses while you're wearing one of those masks? I, I don't know. I never have. It's really difficult. It really messes with the... the it, you gotta have that airtight seal. Yeah. That sucks also, for who's visually impaired. If he wasn't such a weenie, he could've got it. I, uh-huh. I say that as a joke because uh, I... Catch me never even setting foot on that fucking boat. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. Not a chance in hell. Especially not if I was Brody. I'm like, man, you're just... You're, you're just a cop, man. Like, what are you doing here? Like, he's there to kind of look out for the citizens of Amity. Like, it makes sense. He's a good guy. But no, I would not. I wouldn't have come within a mile of that fucking boat. Or of any of that. Honestly, the first time I heard that there was any kind of shark, I would just be like, goodbye. I'm like, I'll be a few Not even over. sharks are above the law. <laughs> yeah, honestly, cop versus shark. Jeez. Law and order nautical unit or something. That, that's the one I would watch, Dick Wolf. <laughs> come. Oh Dick Wolf, God. come get your nautical unit. Um. I'll give you In the town of Amity, <laughs> <laughs> crimes committed by sharks are considered especially heinous. <laughs> Yeah, but... <laughs> okay, anyway, uh, cop versus shark, two, electric boogaloo aside. I mean, Ray um, Scheider was in the second one. Was he? Yes. Uh, who was it? <laughs> Just, it, sharks keep fucking showing up to this town, the man can't catch <laughs> I'm a break. sick and tired. Of these <laughs> motherfucking sharks <laughs> on this motherfucking beach. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um... Uh, the uh, the whole narrative of like the them not being willing to close the beaches hit especially hard in wake Oof. of recent events. Um, like <laughs> it, it it was like, and I liked how you know at first the narrative wasn't all about immediately launching into this whole like machismo fueled. Oh, there's a killer shark. Well, we better go kill the shark. Like that only happened because like. <laughs> the powers that be were not willing to take basic government steps to ensure the safety of the people. Like, which, wow, wonder where we've seen that. <laughs> um, 
because uh, yeah because it was i mean that was their industry that was tourism and closing the beaches meant loss of revenue so guess who wins in that situation it wasn't a hard uh wasn't difficult for panama city beach to make the choice between revenue or hey. the beaches oh <laughs> uh, well slightly different situation but yes <laughs> While we're on this topic, a character that I appreciated that they put it, uh, put in there, I can't remember her name, but the, the mother Kintner? of the little boy, yes, the mother of the little boy that dies, who, uh, close fist slaps Brody in the face. I was like, <laughs> yeah, speak truth to power, lady, it is his <laughs> I mean, really, it should have been the mayor, but Brody more or less yeah. deserved it as well. He, he handles it with grace. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, he's like, you know what, lady? You you right? Yeah, that's right. No, the mayor says right. she's wrong, and he, and Brody says no, she isn't. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. And it's like that to him is like it's a wake up call moment, not because he didn't realize, but because that's him, I guess, realizing the true cost of what's happening, and, and yeah. making him feel like he has to take some more responsibility for it than he's been taking. Because he's kind of just been like, uh, yeah, well, okay. Like, which is fair for a guy in his position, once again. Like, you can't really blame him, but, like, you know, it also kind of needed to happen. And it is kind of interesting how, you know, in both of these movies, it's sort of like the the people in charge, while very much well-intentioned, are either more interested in profit margins or kind of just going along with the people who are interested in profit margins yeah. until until shit hits the fan. Um, which, once again, kind of relatable uh, in this day and age. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, else? I wanted to talk about Clint some more, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, so his... He was on the Indianapolis. And how many men was it? 700 men, something like that, killed by sharks. Yeah, and drown when down. and or drowning and or exposure um and he has spent his life hunting sharks um and killing them and he goes after this one it doesn't really feel like an obsession at the beginning until we, they get to the point where he's trying to wear down the shark by pushing the boat faster than they need to go, pushing it to its maximum, um, that's which is the point where his hubris finally catches up with him when he blows out the engines by pushing the boat too hard because he's just so ready to kill this shark. Mm. Um, and then he suffers the... He, he ends up suffer, uh, meeting the same fate as his fellow sailors, um, you know, at the, at the hands of a shark. Um, so it feels... I don't want to say it feels right because it's a horrible death um but it feels tragic in the in the the classical sense of tragedy yes. where it feels both inevitable and sort of preventable like it feels preventable like technically yes he could have made different decisions that might have have saved his life but it feels inevitable in that based on who he was as a character the trauma he had endured and what kind of person it made him into, it was inevitable. Yes. Uh, making different decisions, like maybe not taking a baseball bat to your only means of communication to the outside world. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> that, that part, every time I'm like, 
But why? But it ends up not being... Mm, okay. <laughs> this leads me into my final thought. My mm. big one complaint about this movie. Mm. Either the filmmaking is so subtle that, like, since Spielberg doesn't shine a flashlight on it, I'm just too much of an idiot to pick up on it. Or this movie is full of unfired Chekhov's guns. Hmm. Can you uh, give some examples? Yes. One, Hooper wastes time. Uh, they don't get one of the, the barrels, one of the harpoons in the shark in an ideal position because Hooper is spending some t- wasting time with one of his fancy gadgets hooking up some sort of gizmo to the harpoon or to attach to the shark, right? And nothing comes of that. There's no, in the moment, you feel like he's being selfish. Is he trying to attach this tracker to the shark because he's not actually going to help them kill it? He just wants to be able to track it and study it? No, that doesn't happen. Is it going to help them, like, track the shark down when they lose it this time? No, that doesn't happen. That It serves no purpose. He wastes time doing that. We're shown he's doing this thing, and there is supposedly a negative result because of it like they don't get the harpoon in the right spot but one the tracker gizmo never ends up coming up to make a point at about anything and two them getting the barrel in not the ideal spot also is of no consequence um i I don't remember any of this in enough detail to be able to comment (laughs) on this i mean uh, he's right the the thing about the tracker specifically is it's very weird. It's not even revealed that he had a plot like, oh, I was going to put a tracker on the shark and then call the Coast Guard so we could get the hell out of here. Right. Or, it, it, like, nothing, nothing. Literally nothing comes of it. And then there's, um, there's, I have several other examples. Like you just said, him destroying their only means of communication. Right. Yeah, the ship sinks, but that's no big deal. The shark's dead. We can just swim back to shore. We're not that far from shore. Uh, it, ultimately, the, whole, the thing be- What? Quint wouldn't have died if he didn't do that but his obsession wouldn't let someone else step in and help him so uh, that one doesn't bother me quite as much as an unfired gun i i I, i'm i would push back and say i feel like quint still would have died i don't think him destroying that necessarily is like direct line to his death i think it's just on the list of things that let that contributed towards it um there's a shot of him very intentionally uh, stabbing a machete into the whaling or the the gunwale of the ship, and then when he falls into the shark's mouth, there's just a quick it's the 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 side of the ship, the side of the ship, um, and he falls into the shark's mouth and he's like punching it, and then like the next time it cuts back, he's stabbing it with the machete, but like there was never, there wasn't even a shot of him grabbing it. It's just there was very intentional setup of he did this, he stuck the machete here, and then later on it was just like. It's not even a, oh, look, he's doing the thing he set up to use. It's very easy to miss entirely. I feel like a lot of that, I don't know, I'm not the director, so I don't really know the reasons for it, but I guess I feel like a lot of that could be dismissed as just, like, showing the way these guys are going about their professional knowledge. Like, they are enacting their professional knowledge and skills to accomplish this mission, so more like kind of window dressing, maybe? I could see that. It's just character through showing character through all this very stuff that they're doing well because um, there is so much technical nautical but, jargon and 
you know, whatnot. Uh, no, that's true. I get, you could argue that, you know, uh, Quint's wasting time. Quint does this thing with the machete and Hooper does this thing with the tracker because that's just how they each go about their business. Yeah. But to me, it feels like remnants of scenes that were cut is what it feels like to me. Stuff that was deemed not important enough to keep in this movie that's already two hours long, but we left right. the setup in. Maybe. Um, hmm. I anyway. Know. I mean, that's fair. That's, that's, that's fair. just... That was just a feeling I got watching it, was I would see something be like, ooh, I bet that's going to be something later, and then it wasn't. Yeah, it can be hard to tell sometimes when a movie directs your focus to something. It can be hard to tell in the moment or in retrospect sometimes what the point of it was. Like, it all kind of adds together to make a good whole, I would say. But sometimes it can be difficult to tell exactly what the purpose of each individual right. thing was. It all right. kind of And see, some like things are very well set up. Yeah. Like the 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 supposed explosiveness of the compressed air, mm, you know yeah. that's mm-hmm. uh, Hooper mentions how dangerous it is. Don't mess around with these, and that's then, an almost literal. That's exactly, and then it blows up to kill the shark. Yeah, um, very good, excellent setup and payoff there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just felt to me like a lot of things were set up that weren't paid off. Hmm. Um, one other thing that's totally unimportant. It's only going to take a second. At the very beginning, before, well, not at the very beginning, when um, Alex Kentner, the kid who gets eaten by the shark, before he dies, his mom says something along the lines of, let me see your fingers. Oh, your fingers are getting so pruned, as in, like, or the line was, your fingers are beginning to prune, as, like, an argument for why he shouldn't get back in the water. I'm like, what? Is that, like, some sort of weird 70s thing? Like, people thought be. you shouldn't stay in the water after your fingers started to prune because it was bad it was for bad you? They might have thought it was bad for your skin. <laughs> I, I don't know. That, I mean, I've gotten majorly pruned fingers before and just kind of been like, huh, that kind of looks weird. Anyway, <laughs> back in the water. Back like, to swimming. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, I've got swimming and drinking to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, I, I don't know, but who's to say? Uh, Three, if we're about to get out of here, three super, super quick things. Yeah, well, Do we're it. not really I've, getting I've out of here. We're coming back for Jurassic World. Uh, Jurassic uh, Park, Jesus Christ. Oh, boy. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Two no. very different things. No. Um, three very quick things. Caleb just refreshed my memory on this one. Uh, at the very beginning of the movie, the cold open if you will. Uh, uh, whatever lines are going on there, I don't know if it's ADR, if that's what they got on set, but it is laughably bad. Uh, really? My, op- my opening line was almost, stop, wait, I'm not drunk. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned... This is how people talked in the 70s. It's but... funny you mentioned ADR, because apparently this movie was key in like developing the use of ADR in film. Ah, interesting. Okay. Well, you know. Yeah. It's painfully obvious in the cold open. I, uh, watching that cold open, I had the thought that this might be the closest thing to a cliche horror movie opening that Caleb will ever see. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, uh, first I said, first I, I thought closest thing to a horror movie opening but then i thought well he's gonna watch the shining but that doesn't really have a cliche horror movie opening because it starts off very slow and very normal kind of um but but this one is like oh a bunch of attractive teens sitting around getting drunk and then someone's gonna get killed 
there you go. Like, that I was like, wait, Caleb hasn't seen many movies with this. This is a weird thought. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But of course he does because it's obvious. But like, I don't know. I just think it's kind of funny. Like, <laughs> they, it's, still a, it's still a fresh filmmaking technique. Yeah, yeah. It's nice. They, they, were, they were at least tasteful enough to not have it happen while they were like actually banging or something. Like, <laughs> like just two of them in, in one bite or something. I, I also, could see a later movie doing that. Uh, my man, my man, being so drunk that he doesn't even make it in the water to skinny dip. <laughs> I know that's so sad, but also We've been there, buddy. Probably it saved your life. Dying. Yeah, I don't know what the lesson is there, but there's something to. to the lesson done. is get super drunk all the time, and you will never get killed by a shark for some reason. <laughs> but it only becomes cool after you're 21, kids. Yeah, uh, and then it's fucking awesome. <laughs> Uh, uh, I forgot the second thing that I was going to say, so that's good oh, for the sake buddy. of time. The third and final thing I wanted to say, as a quick note, Justin finds a way to talk about comic books in every episode. <laughs> Justin, uh, uh finds a uh, way. <laughs> uh, Robert Shaw is the inspiration and character model for the X-Men villain and Hellfire Club leader, Sebastian Shaw, what? in Marvel Comics. So thank you, Quinch, wow. for giving us a key player in the Dark Phoenix saga. That's <laughs> interesting. Huh. Was he in a lot of stuff? I'm not really familiar with him outside this movie. Uh, he... I believe he was a stage actor and a writer first. Mm-hmm. Um, then, later in his life, um, I think really starting in the 70s is when he had um, uh, big screen success uh but he died in 78 uh he was only 51 when he died oh wow. and uh uh appropriately based on the joke we just made uh it was because he was an alcoholic all of his life so mm. it's only cool in moderation like kids. many a writer before him to be fair <laughs> yeah yeah got big hemingway vibes from the guy um but yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah. Fun family friendly note. <laughs> yeah, lessons from Dras- uh, D- uh, Jaws. Um, um, always drink in moderation. Um, don't go skinny dipping. Listen to your scientific experts. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't get on a boat. Um, <laughs> That's just good advice for anyone. If you get on the boat, don't make the boat go too fast. Uh, capitalism is not worth the lives of citizens. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, if there is something, let's say some kind of force of nature that is menacing people's lives, and you have the option to either close your business temporarily and protect people from that, or keep it open and allow them to get killed, the ethical thing to do (laughs) is to close it. Good night. (laughs) (laughs) stephanie has spoken (laughs) sorry the ethical thing to do is for the government to step the fuck up and take some responsibility and tell people to close it because they won't by themselves because people are idiots anyway um so (laughs) that's part one yeah part one up next (laughs) will be up next the exact same themes (laughs) (laughs) the same story with different people Sharks on land. <laughs> land sharks. The sharks can Street now sharks, if you, you may. onto the land. All right. We'll see you guys after the break. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out our show. 
Give us a follow on Twitter at SoundsFilmiliar and let us know any film pairings you would like us to cover. Did you also know that we have a sister show that covers cryptids, UFOs, and anything else strange and spooky? If that sounds like your thing, be sure to listen to I Hope You Exist on your favorite podcast service. We love you. Now back to the show. We are back from the break, and it is time to talk about 1990... Oh, God. Three's Jurassic Park. It's a dinosaur. Yes, John Williams, sorry, there's more than one. Wait, what? No. John Williams... Uh, doing the score for both these movies masterfully well and and always sounding very John Williams-y. I, I, I never really know how to describe it. There's there's something about a John Williams track that, like, uh, uh, he has these little da-da-da-da-da things that go on, like, I don't know, just these little, little trilly notes that don't really seem to make much sense together but kind of work. I, I don't really know how else to put it. Uh- like... <laughs> There, there are two composers that you can tell instantly without even looking, without even telling what movie you're watching, and that is John Williams and Danny Elfman. Like you always know, <laughs> yeah, one of those yeah, two. yeah. You're right, and I think that just because they both have that kind of, I don't know, they have like a, a quirkiness to their their uh, composing that's very identifiable. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't. I know about music, but I don't know enough about music to accurately describe this. But but they have, yeah, just those certain sounds. But that work super well for these movies. And it's not like these are, you know, super quirky movies or anything. It's just that they, the, the music brings such a life to it because the music is so lively and so evocative. I, I don't know, like... It's, it's really good. And That's all I got. Grand. Yeah. My, yes, my, my, yes. John Williams knows how to create a grand centerpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. As, yeah. In, in Jurassic Park, especially, there's such that that sense of grandness, which um, which the movie needs. Um, and and it, it is so wonderfully underscored by the music. Um, scored by the music? It, <laughs> yes. Uh, no, it, it's really good, and and he's also able to to capture all those shifts in tone uh, that the movie kind of needs. Yes, <laughs> because it's all over the place—not all over the place, all over the place in a good way <laughs> in regards to tone, which is a, a difficult line to walk. Um. So so yeah, Jurassic Park. Um. Oh gosh, hard to even know where to begin with this one. Um. Experiences. I saw the first three Jurassic Park movies all when I was probably way too young to see any of them. Um, I had many Jurassic Park toys um, and did not appreciate this movie at all until I saw it as an adult. Uh, <laughs> I am told I saw this movie in theaters. Uh, when it first came out, oh. I would have been... Oh, so it's like you and me with Angels in the Outfit. <laughs> I would have been one and a half uh. <laughs> at the time. Yeah, uh, so you're a arms, basically. <laughs> um, but I, we had it on VHS, watched it a lot. Uh, 
and up until this rewatch, the last time I watched it was with you guys in theaters for the re-release a few years oh, ago. That was a great. God, that was so good. <laughs> the sound, the sound oh, design alone. So... Yeah, what a great movie to see in theaters. Mm-hmm. Two movies that I'm glad I paid to go for the re-releases are this and uh, Ghostbusters. Those I'm really sad I didn't get to see Ghostbusters. Oh, sweetie. And I'll get to see it. They they re-release it in theaters practically every year. I, I know. There are a lot of movies I desperately wish I could see re-released in theaters that probably I'll never get to, but like Moulin Rouge, like we talked yeah. about a couple weeks ago. God. Holding out I'll for you, Roger there. Rabbit. <laughs> Hold on. I'm, I got to go buy my tickets to see Scott Pilgrim right now because I forgot about that. Oh, is that coming up? <laughs> yes. Oh. Well, um... Yeah, so my experience, um, I, like Caleb, I saw this movie actually when I was probably a little too young. Um, I did not see a lot of movies as a kid, so I think it's because, uh, once again, my parents, or at least my dad, uh, really liked this movie, that I saw it as young as I did. And I remember, I distinctly remember it being one of the first experiences of watching something actually scary that I had ever had. Um, this, this movie and A Christmas Carol stand out to me as my first experiences of being genuinely scared watching a movie in a good way. Yeah. Um, and that's two very different types of scary. Like, obviously, A Christmas Carol is very much like, you know, ghost spooky. And Jurassic Park is like, big creature with teeth might eat you. (laughs) (laughs) Like, very different types. But there's that similar thrill, you know, when you're a kid, especially a very sheltered kid like me with very, like, Christian parents who wasn't allowed to watch anything, like, really scary remotely. Like, um, watching this, I was so excited. I was like, oh my god, this is the coolest thing I've ever it's seen. Happening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just, yeah, that, like, the that delightful, like, thrill of fear, but nothing too, like, gory or or too devastating like just exciting enough that like a late elementary middle school aged uh kid will will really love it um and also i was one of those kids who was very into dinosaurs um (laughs) i had a lot of books about dinosaurs as a kid um i was very fascinated by them and seeing them on the big screen in you know non-animated <laughs> fashion was super cool yeah. um man and uh yeah when you're a it's... kid dinosaurs are so cool i know growing up uh i i had an attitude about dinosaurs to where i was like if i was getting a toy i either needed a top of the line like superhero action figure not a cheap one i needed like a really good one or i needed a one dollar rubber t-rex <laughs> It's funny the two of you say that because I was just talking to my coworker Hank yesterday about Jurassic Park, and he said he's never seen it. And I was like, "Oh, what? A nerd who hasn't seen Jurassic never... Park? It's really good." And he was like, "Yeah, I just wasn't into dinosaurs as a kid." What? And I'm like, what? "When has that sentence ever been true?" <laughs> <laughs> you, you, sir, are a statistical outlier and oh disgust me. Yeah, that's just like, unless no, they have no. a medical issue that gives them a sugar aversion. If someone's like, I didn't really like candy as a kid, don't trust that person. Right. Someone's, no. Someone is in I their trunk like, right now. People, right. I don't like pizza. What's wrong with you? I don't, I don't, I I could almost see how a kid like me wouldn't have been into dinosaurs because I was mostly into really girly stuff. And like, yet you were. And yet I was. You're pretty. <laughs> 
But but also to be fair, like I really I loved animals a lot as a kid, and um, dinosaurs were a particularly cool kind of animal, kind of a runner up to my interest in like cryptozoology. Um, which, of course, Justin knows all about. I hope you <laughs> exist. Love. Part of our network yeah. that isn't really a network, but I'm involved in both. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it, it's a network. We're calling it that. Um, it's official. Um, but, yeah, kind of a precursor to that because it was, like, so fascinating. The concept of, like, an animal, and especially an animal of that size in some cases, like, that could just completely vanish and no longer be present on the earth and that you can only find through extensive digging in the ground like there's something very romantic about that like especially to a kid who's very into animals mysteries already no i absolutely agree with you i I have distinct memories of like looking at my rubber t-rex holding it in my hand and having thoughts that basically equated to me going Man, if this existed right now, it would fuck my shit up. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically this movie. Um, you are already ahead of a lot of the adults in this movie. Um, yeah, um, and so of course, and I think what set Jurassic Park apart, which I definitely didn't realize at the time, but I realize now is that um, it's very engaging, like we were talking about earlier, beyond the level of just being about scary dinosaurs eating people, that, like, it's actually exciting. It's very well-paced. Um, I didn't always think it was well-paced at the time. As a mm. kid, I was like, yeah, lots of talking yeah. before the exciting stuff happens. But now I, of course, appreciate but, it yeah, a lot Yeah, as an more. adult, the pacing is great, and the script is fantastic. Is great. Yes. Oh, I, I remember realizing when we watched it in the theater, like, because I was paying such close attention and was, like, not looking at my phone, not talking to anyone... I, yeah, I was realizing just how good the script was and how efficient it is, you know? Like, it kind of made me think of how a lot of movies, uh, more genre-type movies, fall into the kind of quippy mode, which is, like, they're trying to keep the audience invested by, like, saying funny shit and whatever, like, which is fine, but I think this movie does that well in that people say funny, snappy things, but it feels like there's a reason for it yes. to be there. Steven Spielberg, write the next Guardians of the Galaxy, please. <laughs> <laughs> or, to be fair, I, I, I think there might have been other screenwriters. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not aware of the credits. Whoever wrote the script for Jurassic yeah. <laughs> Park, please write whatever movie Star-Lord is uh, in next. Uh, screenplay by Michael Crichton and David... Kep is how I'm going to say it. K-O-E-P-P. Well, okay. we're 50% out of luck there. Oh, so Michael Crichton, the... The author of the book. Oh, he was involved in the screenplay. That's yes. cool. Yeah. Uh, is he deceased? Yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, but still, still. And is. produced by Kathleen Kennedy and Gerald R. Mullen. She produced most of Spielberg's movies from what I'm... Yes, yeah, she worked with him a lot before she started working on um, on Star Wars. So, which is also quite side note. It's pretty funny when nerd boys are like, Ugh, "Who's this Kathleen Kennedy bitch who just came out of nowhere and thinks she could run Star Wars?" And I'm like, "I, I don't know, uh, Steven Spielberg's protege." Like, uh, also, <laughs> uh, uh, fanboys out there who are still on the Kathleen Kennedy hate train, uh, she can't hear you on top of her pile of money because she is the third highest earning producer. 
behind Kevin Feige and Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I should hope so. Uh, in charge of Star Wars like that. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, she earned it. But, like, I don't love everything that new Star Wars has put out. But I like it as a whole. So, I don't know. I think she's done pretty well. But that's a different tangent. I think if you produced Jurassic Park, you're forever allowed to tell everyone to go fuck themselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Indiana Jones. And, you know, innumerable other things that nerd boys love to fawn over. Exactly. But they like to be selective about that. Like, oh, like, if it's something bad, it was Kathleen Kennedy's fault. But if it's something good, it was because of someone else. <laughs> right. That's how it always works. Now, instead of Jurassic Park, we're going to talk about The Last Jedi and Captain Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, please, no. We don't want kidding. them to descend upon us. Um, anyway, so uh, backtracking to Jurassic Park, huh? Um, oh, gosh. So, so Jurassic Park, geez. Um, I'm assuming most people know the basic story. Um, idealistic venture capitalist wants to make a Jurassic Park where there are dinosaurs and it's basically going to be like a theme park for people to come to. Uh, he enlists the help of some scientists and I guess chaos theorists or whatever <laughs> Jeff Goldblum is. He calls um, them in because the investors slash insurance company or whatever won't buy in unless... Right. They uh, want it approved by unless, people who know what they're doing. Uh, right. Fictional character... I most want to do mushrooms with Dr. Ian Malcolm. <laughs> the monologues that man would go on while I, under the influence of shrooms. This, this movie has just enough Goldblum. Um, <laughs> a good use of your Goldblum. Exactly. Um, he is so well used in this movie. Um, and from my understanding... I don't, oh god i don't remember where i heard this but apparently he he basically argued a bigger part for himself for the movie oh. like during the script readings i mean that's funny i he already doesn't have that big a part uh, uh caleb as a as someone who like the only one of us that read the novel uh how does malcolm's character vary because i've also heard that because of goldblum they shook up the character a lot um okay it's been like 10 years since the last time I read it, so I can't really speak to the authenticity of the character. Um, you know, the larger shakes, I'm, from what I recall, are the same. Like, the, the structure is there. It's just, you know, he brings a certain gold bloominess to it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, That's, like, so much of it is just kind of that individual performance that, like, without it, it could just be a guy, like being sassy you know uh, right or just a boring mathematician who's just spouting off random right, just theories um but he he brings that 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 he he himself feels like a spirit of chaos you know um so it it works to, to loki-esque character yeah exactly he he has that sort of energy to him um honestly the only thing i really remember about the book versus the movie was there are some scenes um there were two books. There was Jurassic Park and then there was The Lost World. Um, and they, like, swapped scenes from the books and the movies. Hmm. So, like, some scenes that are in the first book are in the second movie and vice versa. Huh. Um, oh, cool. Just to make the flow work better. Which is funny because, I don't know, people people always say that, like, the, the second and third movies are so much worse than the first one. Yeah. At least people say that. Um, 
It, uh, I don't know. I haven't, I have only seen the second one all the way through, like, maybe twice. Honestly, might only be once. I need to rewatch it. I remember being very whelmed by it. <laughs> I was like, all right, this is, um, not too bad. Uh, not super, not super impressed, but it's okay. Yeah, I, it's I think the best way to describe it is, uh, Jurassic Park is one of my favorite movies of all time. The sequels are fine. <laughs> yeah. The, you know, the third one, it, the third one is one of the more maligned entries in the saga. I actually liked the third one as a kid. Now I definitely see why people don't like it. Um, however, I really liked it as a kid. I think because the story was simpler. Like, it was pretty easy to follow. Like, the right. third one is just, like... Kid goes missing. Yeah, kid goes missing. The rich parents who don't know what's up, like, call Dr. Grant because he's the only one who, like, knows the island. They trick him into going there to find the kid. Um, there's the sideline about, like, the raptor eggs getting stolen. They have to to return them. There's the, there's still the themes of, like, parenthood and everything. It, I don't think it's that bad. A lot of people think it's bad. Your mileage may vary. Maybe we'll talk about it at some point. Um, the only, I, I have not seen the most recent Jurassic Park universe entry, uh, the, um... Fallen Kingdom? Yeah, Supposedly I, it's better than Jurassic World, but I'm willing to believe anything is better than Jurassic, Jurassic World. Jurassic World is the only entry in the saga that I have active ire towards. <laughs> for a multitude of reasons and to the extent that i would like to talk about it at the on the podcast at some point because i i I know that we don't have time to get into it here but um it's uh it's uh i didn't Uh, really like it audience do you have a good example of uh a franchise killer to pair with jurassic world and i'm gonna say it right now no Star Wars movies better come out of your mouth. We're not going to yeah, do please, it. Yeah, <laughs> please. Please do not talk to us about Star Wars. We don't want to hear about it. We're done with that for the So anything the other being. than Star Wars, you yeah. consider a no, franchise it's, it's It's... It's... Jurassic World... God, so why am I letting myself let's, get sucked into this? Let's go back. No, but I want to talk... But I, <laughs> I want to talk about it, but I know I shouldn't. I... I want to talk about it in relation to the themes of Jurassic Park... But I should talk about the themes of Jurassic Park before attempting to do that. So let's, yeah. We'll put a pin in it. Let's put a pin in that. Um, oh gosh, Jurassic Park. How, it, how do you even, so this movie (laughs) is about the trifecta. Mm. The trifecta being a big scary creature eat person. That's the first one. The second one is... Try to make money off of stuff without considering that people might get hurt. Bad. AKA capitalism bad. Because capitalism mandates that you do that. Because capitalism cares about money first and people 20th. Third. (laughs) Fatherhood is a terrifying thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's really the big one. That's the big undercurrent (laughs) and and that's what i was thinking about a lot when watching these this time and i it occurred to me that like the perspective of these movies is a perspective that is extremely foreign to me because the perspective is that of both it, it is a male perspective 
extremely so, and it is a mature male perspective. <laughs> I am neither of those things. <laughs> um, it, but it was it's very fascinating because it kind of it very naturally kind of allows you to see into that perspective that you know you may not be quite acquainted with. But both of these movies, and you know, at, at large, maybe. A lot of Spielberg's filmography, if we want to project like that, I haven't seen all of it, but I've seen some of it, and it seems to hold pretty true, is about kind of that, the the theme of, of fatherhood, um, and I guess in an even more broad sense, the theme of responsibility, uh, maybe, uh, responsibility and stewardship, uh, which is interesting, because like I said, this is, this is not my forte. And yet it's extremely fascinating to think about through this lens. Like, um, the the protagonists of both these movies, you know, Brody in the last one and Dr. Grant in this one, are 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 mature, competent people. Like, that's not in question. These are not, like, you know, bright-eyed heroes journey protagonist type people. The these are men, you know, <laughs> men of science or working class men or whatever so it's not so much that they have to go on a journey of self-discovery it's more that they go on a journey of hmm, acclimating to or changing their environment Caleb it's interesting because I, I was going to say that Brody strikes me as very much of a static character Yes. He yeah. does not really change. The only thing that he has to overcome is essentially his fear of boats. <laughs> That's it. And people's unwillingness to listen to him. Yes. Um, whereas Grant Grant, see, Grant has a bit more of an arc. Yes. Um, and that he very clearly changes his attitude about children and parenthood. Um, yes. Right. It, it's about... They're both journeys of fatherhood, but the first one is the father, you know, archetypal father figure. The first one is the father trying to protect the literal or metaphorical children in a world that is hostile to them. Um, and the second one is about a father that doesn't know he's a father, <laughs> more or less. Or like a father who ha who is not willing to be one initially. And then learns to become one. <laughs> so basically he's just a stereotypical 90s dad who works too much and needs to learn to spend more time with his kids. <laughs> not, not really, not really. But <laughs> no, it's it's more in his case, yes, it's learning to be a father in the first place. Right. Um, and you know, and here we go with Jurassic World again. That's something that Jurassic World attempted to do. And God, did they attempt to update it to be like, this time, it's a woman. But what they failed to consider was that the gender politics of of telling a man you need to learn to be a father versus telling a woman you need to learn to be a mother are completely different things in a Hollywood blockbuster that I don't think anyone took into consideration. Right, and it's not like, just that. There's there's more 
packaging that comes along yes. with each of those because yes. like there's no implication that like dr Crank should quit being a paleontologist to become a right. dad it's as not opposed like, to look at this guy who cares too much about science it's just right. look at this guy who's kind of an asshole but there know? is <laughs> in jurassic world it's like look at this woman who cares too much about being right. good at business look at this to... shrill corporate bitch who needs to like loosen up those ovaries and like get back in the kitchen you know that's and i know that's not what jurassic world was trying to do but because they tried to directly replicate what was done in jurassic park they ended up kind of doing that like you guys read a message in jurassic world that wasn't just a studio trying to be like man isn't chris pratt cool Uh, don't you want to give us a billion dollars because chris pratt is cool no that i maintain to this day that that little relationship would have worked so much better if chris pratt's character was a woman and uh bryce dallas howard's character was a man like that would have been way cuter that would have been like flushed away or some shit where it's like (laughs) this like snooty posh little dude and like cool badass nature chick whatever like it would have still been a little cliche, but it would have been less offensive than what ended up happening. <laughs> would she have also been played by Kate Winslet? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe if you aged up the characters. Caleb, go a to the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Straight to horny jail. <laughs> Caleb's already imagining her riding around on a motorcycle or something. Um, anyway, that is just to say that yeah, that this the and and the movie isn't isn't just about this one character's journey to the concept of fatherhood. It's about fatherhood in a larger sense, like the concept of responsibility and and of <laughs> putting aside your own selfish desires for for what's best, which is kind of inherent to that role. Like you know and you see it in other characters too like Hammond who I really like as a character and it's hard to get me to like a capitalist character so good because on this he's movie he's not cartoonishly right, evil right he's not he's yes he he is an extremely sympathetic character who has made a bad bad huge mistake <laughs> like <laughs> huge <laughs> Right, which is good, which adds a much-needed level of nuance because, you know, in these kind of movies, it's very easy to have the, just the ruthless capitalist, um, which is which is a character in a lot of movies, and yet when you make them cartoonishly evil, you don't really say anything because it's like, right. it's easy dis- to dismiss that as just one of the bad guys. Well, that's what the lawyer becomes. Yeah, that's what the lawyer's yeah. there for. And it's, be- it's better that he's a side character in this. Right. Uh, um, Hammond even... He has that line that's like, "No, these these miracles of science shouldn't just be for the uh, for the rich. Like this is for everyone." Right. This is someone who genuinely believes he, in what he's doing. This is a man who was who grew up very very poor. His first job was a flea circus. Right. That was his first attraction, and now he's worked his way up to this somehow. God, that that conversation that he has with Doctor Sattler is so good. Where he's he he's like, you know, people would say they could see the fleas, but of course there weren't any fleas there, and I I wanted to show them something that wasn't an illusion. Like it's so good. The, the, the two of the best scenes in this movie are like over dinner. 
because the other one <laughs> is where they're sitting and at where they're having dinner in like that crazy black mm. box room that mm. has like no discernible boundary. <laughs> Love it. They're just surrounded by screens playing like yes. promotional footage for the park. Yes. Um, and that entire sequence is just so good. It's it's really cool to see um, a bunch of professional top of their field people have a disagreement about something because it leaves you genuinely uncertain of who to agree with, you know? Like, because on the one hand, you want to believe in, like, um, uh, in Hammond's vision for, like, this great new technology that can bring the wonder of the ancient world to all people. Like, and... And of course, he's ignoring the lawyer being like, oh, you know, we can charge so much money. And he's like, no, I want everyone to come. And then on the other hand, you have the scientists making extremely valid points. Like, um, we're, we're playing with a whole lot of variables here and we don't know what's going to happen and it could be bad and this might not be a good idea. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so good because you can't really take a side. You just genuinely listen to what everyone has to say. Yeah, man. Uh, just another quick thing about Jurassic World. Jurassic Park is so believable uh, because of when it came out. Jurassic World is not. I'm like, if they cloned dinosaurs right now where live streaming technology is a thing, no one would be allowed near them. At best, they would be on an island somewhere with cameras on them and you could, like, check it out on Twitch. Yeah. <laughs> I think Jurassic World is believable in so much as if that were to happen and you could get past all that stuff, I do totally believe that people would try to make a huge... Uh, Disney World-esque theme park and make a shit ton of money off of it and that people would actually go. But yeah, there's a whole lot of roadblocks to that yeah. actually happening. <laughs> um, I I think that it was good that in this one they kept it to the like beta test <laughs> version where they're like just bringing in a few experts and keeping it mostly contained because that allows us to wave aside the questions of, well, wouldn't someone, you know, right. or whatever... And also keeps it to a limited cast of characters um, that, that works really well and play really well off of each other. Caleb, you seem like you're going to say something. I noticed something this watch through what? that hinges on <laughs> a single dialogue exchange that's very easy to miss. Hmm. So throughout the entire movie, Hammond is saying he spared no expense. And then when things start to fall apart, you start to question whether or not that's true, right? Yeah. Um, to the point that Nedry even comp uh, implies that it's he does what he does because Hammond wouldn't give him more money, or he w The implication is that Hammond wasn't paying him enough; he was paying him, you know, peanuts. Um, but Nedry himself says, uh, to paraphrase, uh, "Good luck finding." someone else doing what I've done on what I bid for this job. Meaning, Nedry put in a bid saying, I will do this, do the work for X amount of money. Okay? And then Hammond has an exchange with him um, saying something about, I don't blame people for their mistakes, but I expect them to pay for them. Implication here being that the only reason Nedry needs more money is because he made some sort of huge financial mistake, probably gambling or something, getting getting in debt to the wrong people. Yeah. So Hammond really has spared no expense, mm. right? The only reason, 
uh, Nedry has this grudge against Hammond for not giving him more money, but it's Nedry's own fault. Yeah. Right? He got paid exactly what he bid to do the job for. Yes. Um, right, and I never caught that before. I always kind of assumed that maybe they really just had shortchanged him, because, I mean, I guess it would make sense. It, it was the 90s, and no one knew what technology was capable of. I guess they, they might have just... Right, like, nobody oh, knew the worth of a good... IT guy, you know. Well, I, I never gave it too much thought, because not one single time in this movie am I ever on Nedry's side. <laughs> no, 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 I'm, absolutely, you shouldn't be. Um, Dennis Nedry is such a great name for that character, I don't know why, but it just, just seems so Dennis Nedry. <laughs> He's great, though. Oh, God, what's the actor's name? Wayne, Wayne Knight. He, do- he does such a great job i always love him like whatever he's in a movie even when he's playing a completely despicable character you're still like Haha, love this guy um, you know? i would also like to know what theme park uh wronged michael Crichton, uh because his two arguably his two biggest novels are westworld and jurassic park uh, are... I'm about to sound like a whole dumbass, but Michael Crichton was the original creator of Westworld. Yeah, original writer. Yeah, yeah. Holy! What? So... I'm sure there was even there's even an, uh, a movie. Yeah, there's. A I haven't movie seen from the, 70s. the show, and I should watch it because it seems like something I'd be super into. Because I love when robots achieve sentience or whatever. The first 70s, season's but... great. Yeah, it's from the yeah. 70s or 80s. Yeah, the, the first. So movie. I've heard. Um, um, I did not know that was Michael Crichton, but okay. that makes so much sense. Man has a thing with theme parks gone wrong. Um, I that is really cool. I would love to dig more into that it, because it seems like he he saw kind of the the warning signs of capitalistic takeover in, yeah. in regards to these things. Mm-hmm. Saw the dangers of that. Never read it. The only other Michael Crichton book I've read besides the two Jurassic Park books is a uh, Timeline, which Timeline the book really good. Love it. Timeline the movie garbage <laughs> steaming pile of shit like not just as an adaptation like it's just a terrible movie well Do not at least wa- they like, got jurassic okay. park right yeah watch at your own risk <laughs> <laughs> um anyway so jurassic park the good michael Crichton adaptation <laughs> um yeah oh gosh so so, 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 I, I don't even know where to go. These things are, uh, we're not structured enough here, guys. <laughs> um, no, the characters. Chaos, Stephanie. Yes, chaos. Uh, the characters, the characters are great. Um, I, I, I really like, I really like how, like I said earlier, it's kept small so that each person has a pretty defined role and pretty defined, like, knowledge that they bring to, to the table. And, of course, when you introduce the kids into the mix, then it's like, <laughs> that that is an agent of chaos in and of itself like yeah. because because when kids are involved it just throws everything out of whack but but even the um even the kids i i like more than i like a lot of child characters because it feels like they have pretty defined personalities um and they aren't just there to be like kids that you have to save from a dinosaur i mean you do have to but like they also feel like real people um and i think that was another thing that i liked when i was a kid was that there were, like, um, child characters who I sort of could see myself in, and I was like, yeah, that's about how I would react in this situation. <laughs> I could see that. Yeah, that's how I'd react if I was being hunted by a velociraptor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, what a great scene. Right. What a great uh, yeah. scene. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but yes, and it's very good. And I also, like, 
while we're on the subject of projecting ourselves onto characters and also on the subject of Jurassic World having bad gender politics, um, I always really liked uh, Laura Dern's character in this one, um, Dr. Sattler. Just, like, what a great, what a great female character TM. Um, <laughs> and once again, I have to compare it to Jurassic World because it's, like, it, it's just, like, what a great character who is, like, a cool scientist but also is, like, you know, kind of funny and, like, likes kids and, like, pokes fun at her boyfriend and, you know, wants to pet the Triceratops and... You just, like, I don't know, I, I really liked her as a kid. And, like, the fact that she's a woman doesn't factor into anything. Right. It feels it's almost like, like a Ripley well, type of character. Well, I would All, say not quite. less Ripley Le- because I could tell that Dr. Sattler was written as a woman character. Yes, I mean, she cares about the kids when her boyfriend doesn't. And then there's the great line, we'll talk about sexism and survival situations when I yeah, get back. Yeah, I love her, yeah. <laughs> um, um, she is very right. maternal. She does, you know, she stops to take care of the Triceratops. Yeah, um, yeah, I, that was so funny to me. Like I was, how she was like, oh, oh, like talking about how beautiful she is and like petting her. And, like I'm gonna stay with the the trike for a while, and I was like, that would be me. I would be like, look at this huge dinosaur the size of a truck. Like, oh, a baby. <laughs> <laughs> that would absolutely be it's shaped me. like a friend. <laughs> exactly. Right, but it's never like. Oh, look at her, like, her, her maternal instincts. Yeah, like, it's never, it never goes either way with her. It's, like, never, like, oh, her maternal instinct made her act stupid. Or, on the other hand, the way Jurassic World does, ooh, her lack of maternal instinct makes her a bad woman, TM. Like, it's, it's (laughs) not ever like that. Um... But yeah, and I I really like her dynamic with uh, Doctor Grant because what a strange dynamic. I don't know. I like it. It feels like a real relationship to me. Like yeah. it's literally. It wasn't until this watch through that I realized they actually are an item because Malcolm really? explicitly asks. Well, they don't ever kiss or anything says. like that. They don't ever like. They, to me, feel like people who have been together for a long time and are at the point of their relationship where they're past the honeymoon phase and since they have so much, like, co-worker type stuff in common, are almost, like, co-workers, but but in my opinion, you can still tell that they, like, are in a relationship. They're just two very independent people. Yeah. It, uh, it makes them feel... Uh, real in a way that we rarely get especially in big blockbuster movies like, yeah they they feel organic um and i i, I really i love them both all, all, all the characters in this movie even the ones that i hate are like they're so they're so well done <laughs> right they're they, they have they have defining features and like yes. defining roles, but without becoming really cliche. Yeah, no one's a cartoon a character except maybe Malcolm. Yeah, but God bless him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not even cliche so much as one note, maybe. Like <laughs> he's just like I don't really know what his type is, but he sure has got a type. Like. <laughs> Or like um, Hammond is like, I bring the scientists, you bring, you bring a, rock a rock star. star. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about Malcolm. Which is that, also funny because it's like, he has that cool exterior, but 
<laughs> it very quickly falls apart, which is part of what makes him fun as a character. His like <laughs> he's definitely not like a badass. He's just kind of like a quippy guy <laughs> right, who I'm... gets injured and has to be saved and he's like sitting in the back of the truck, like terrified while the T Rex chases them. Right. I'm trying to find <laughs> one of my favorite lines right now. Um, when, um, when the T-Rex is, like, walking and the, the water is shaking. Oh, yeah. Um, you told me that one, but I can't remember what it is. Oh, uh, that whole scene is so good, though. I'll just keep talking while Caleb's looking. Oh, here it is. I found it. It's mm, just, a, yeah. <laughs> anybody hear that? It's, um, it's an impact tremor. That's what it is. I'm fairly alarmed here. It's just, <laughs> I, can, I can hear his delivery. Just totally calm i'm fairly alarmed here like it's so subdued <laughs> yes oh my god what a great scene like um in in a way that's like once again kind of that combination of like it feels natural and yet it's obviously how movies work with like capital letters like because as soon as the rain starts falling you know the cars stop it gets dark and then it's like okay obviously something bad is about to happen but you want something bad to happen (laughs) you're like okay what's gonna happen and this movie these two movies share something in common that is a, a a remarkable restraint in showing us the, yeah. the quote-unquote monster. Yeah. The T-Rex does not show up until the exact halfway point of this movie. Just the, the movie is two hours and eight minutes long, and it's at an hour and four minutes yeah. that you see oh, the T-Rex shit, for the first time. Oh, shit, that is exact. Yeah, um, sorry. I was laughing so hard because Zephanie, <laughs> her... Yeah. <laughs> like, like she was aroused by how well done the monster was. You know, a good piece of, of, of cinematic timing just gets me just gets me going, maybe. Um but actually. Um but the, uh, Spielberg hit me up. Flowing past that. Uh <laughs> that that's something Spielberg does uh very well. Mm. Um and his entire thing um it's hard it's hard for us to see in retrospect because spielberg is basically like spielberg for people our age looking back that is like the golden era of cinema when we think about it we don't tend to think about things earlier than that too too often um but for spielberg when he was coming out and what made him such a a huge deal and a revelation of like other than his natural talent is he was so good at taking classic established tropes from the films that came before him and delivering on those in a way that feels fresh. And I think he did that so well that it, that's part of what makes his films timeless. Uh, that's yeah. why we still talk about Jaws and Jurassic Park today is because he is a master at using, like, your, you know what's coming. Like, you can feel it. You mm. know what's going to happen. But like Stephanie said, you he's built it up so well that you you want it you're like you're waiting on it and right. it's exciting when it happens it's not boring or like called it it's like t-rex yes <laughs> yeah the, the the tension is so well he, he stretches the tension mm-hmm. and then releases it and then you know it gets stretched more and then we have a calm scene you know two people talking whatever blah 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 and then we start to reminder that the threat is still there and we start stretching again 
I also noticed um, interesting use of score um, in both of these movies. Um, I can't remember in the the famous T-Rex attack scene uh, of the cars, you know, in Jurassic Park, I can't remember exactly when the score cuts out, but I have distinct memories of both in Jaws... I realized this, this this past time around. Quint's confrontation and eventual death by the shark, there is no music. Like, I realized that this 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 time i was like this seems like a place where there would be a really bombastic score and yet there is nothing and it's just the, the, the ambient sounds of a sinking boat and an attacking shark and a man dying and and i also noticed that in the the tyrannosaurus rex attack scene when it's oh gosh if I'm wrong about this, feel free to skewer me. When it's, like, attacking the car, um, and, like, basically destroying the car, flipping it over, like, when the kids are in it, Mm -hmm. you know, um, there, at some point in there, the music completely goes out, and it's just the extremely visceral sounds of the destruction of, you know, the the man-made vehicle, um, and just the screaming and the glass shattering and the mud squelching and if i had to guess i would say it's the moment when lexi comes like eye to eye with it when she's shining her flashlight on it that seems like an appropriate spot for it to cut out right around there it and and the i wouldn't say the quietness of it it's not quiet but but the the absence of the score is in some ways just as effective as the presence of it. And then when it comes back in, that's to signify a shift in dynamic. And I can't remember in either of those scenes when exactly it comes back in, but I do remember it coming back in at key moments. And, and I don't know, it's very interesting because both of those are cases in which the you know, the the creature that is, you know, kind of the focal point of, of, of fear in both of these movies, like the confrontation between man and beast, and there is that sort of quietness and, ex- and also extreme loudness to it um, that really, really got to me, and I really liked it a lot, and I wish I could remember the exact moments when it comes in and goes out, but just really great all around. Great sound design, great directing. Um, going all over the place here, but great directing in both of these movies. I kept noticing that. I mean, since we're talking about directors, we might as well say it. Like, um, just great energy. I, I don't know. I'm not someone who really is that super well acquainted with the role of a director and what all they have a hand in. But, um... Uh, every shot, you know, and every scene, I kept noticing, like, just great choices to maintain, ooh, loud sound, sorry, the kinetic energy of everything that was so necessary. Um, no, uh, uh, so when Jaws came out, um, it got knocked for pace. Uh, a lot of really? people felt the pace was off in it, but again, mm-hmm. uh, I think Spielberg, um, especially when it comes to blockbusters, I have not seen every single Spielberg film. Um, uh, but but even in his more dramatic fare, I always, I'm never bored watching a Spielberg movie. 
No. Um, even when it's just like, oh, get to the action, blah, 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 as Caleb was saying at the beginning of the movie, we like these movies because <laughs> of the characters, because right, if, of the dialogue they have. It's <laughs> If action is not happening, character is happening. There is nothing superfluous. What, and the setup is so necessary for what comes later. It doesn't feel like it's wasted. It feels like it merely enhances your understanding of what happens later. And what happens later wouldn't hit the same if that wasn't in place. Yeah. You know, like, obviously when I was a kid, I liked the second half of Jurassic Park because it's action-y and it's scary and it's exciting. But... As an adult, I recognize that you can see scary and exciting in a lot of different movies, but you can't see things of this depth without the first half and without the setup that is there that 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 pays off later and that you you understand to be the underpinning of the action and the thing that drives it and, and the thing that, you know, that <laughs> causes consequences. <laughs> That's the whole reason we care about what's happening. Um. Yeah, it's really good. Something else these both of these movies do is the opening sequence is an introductory, just like a taste of mm. the horror and something, something. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you either don't see or just barely get a glimpse of the monster. Great horror movie openings for for movies that aren't technically horror, mm -hmm. but still kind of follow a lot of horror movie. Beats. He definitely understands how to, how to do it, how to use the. Trait. Yes, yeah, um, no, I really like both of those, and I think, I think they're necessary because there is some slowness, as we have said, good slowness, but some slowness following it before things really ramp up. So it's good to have that kind of inciting incident. To sort of set the tone, like there is some some shit going down yeah. here. Now, don't forget, like we're gonna go and do some normal <laughs> stuff for a little bit, but the this, shit's yeah. coming back. Well, like, we're gonna have a nice chat for an hour, but don't forget, yeah, people are dying. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which, th that opening scene of Jaws, it. It's fucking I mean, it does. Man. He does the same thing with, in Jurassic Park, in the the person who dies in the opening scene dies a horrible, slow, painful death. Um, but the way that girl dies and it just drags on and she's screaming. I know, it's I was, like, please I, just I, end. Please yeah, just please die. Please make it stop. Yeah. I, this awful. is brutal. It, it, right. Uh, I will say I think it's more effective in Jaws because she's out there alone. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, at least in Jurassic Park, there's, like, other people around trying to do something. I like, think it, Jurassic... Go, you... Uh, and and, and uh, Jaws, there's a real, like... Uh, the isolation that is felt in that scene mm -hmm. really adds to the to the horror. Because there's, there's nothing... Your one, your one chance of survival is passed out drunk on the beach. Oh, right. In it's, Jaws, you have no hope. If, in Jurassic Park, you die despite... I see, I'm gonna say, I don't know what the canon on this is, quote-unquote, but I think in Jurassic Park, I don't think it's clear that that guy dies. Oh, no, he does. He goes limp in Muldoon's arms. I don't think that it's clear that he dies. I think it's deliberately ambiguous. 
I like I'm not saying you can for sure you can say like oh well this seems to indicate or if a person was in this situation they would lose this much blood or whatever like I get what you're saying but I think that the fact that the specific choice to show like the slow slipping of the hand like away but you never quite see it completely disappear seems very deliberate to me seems a very or seems very deliberate to be ambiguous <laughs> does that sentence make sense like no, uh i i think you're absolutely right my my read on it has always been uh that they died but it, i I, think I, I can that, see your point yeah like that's a fair <laughs> inference to make but i guess in my case i'm choosing to look at it through the lens of why is the film showing me exactly what it's showing me and exactly what it's not showing me and to me it makes more sense that it's ambiguous and we're not supposed to know whether the person lives or dies because that kind of sets up the ambiguity of the danger for later on i don't know like i think tell caleb uh, doesn't agree with me uh, here, no no but... i i i to me the visual of the hand going limp and falling away is always used for yeah the visual metaphor is this person has now died and i think showing that they're they are messing with something so dangerous that you have all of these precautions in place you have an entire army of men ready to attempt to subdue this creature and it can still get you despite all of that no i definitely agree i just think that if the intention was to be that this person definitely dies then they would show them definitely dying instead of that what seems to me very deliberate like fading shot of like the hand kind of slipping away and i think you're supposed to read that as the possibility of being able to live when coming in contact with these creatures slipping away but you never quite see it disappear completely and that's what leaves I think if that person had just unambiguously died on screen, I think it would be too much. I think it would be too, it would be showing its hand too early, like showing us if you mess with these creatures, you will die like too early on. We need to have that sense of uncertainty that the scientists have when going to the park. I I agree with you uh, to an extent, but it's also a little funny to me if the movie's like, the message might not be that you uh, will die, but it <laughs> is that you will be mauled horribly. Horribly maimed. <laughs> I know. I know. I Trust me. I know. Like, sorry, you'll just be paralyzed from the waist down or whatever. Like, it's cool. Um, you won't have a waist down. <laughs> no, but it, it was just one of them. I just, I just don't think that it... I'm... All I'm saying is that I believe that when a film draws that much attention to a very um, important shot and to a very metaphorical, whatever you want to call it, significant shot, that there is more to be read into it than the obvious. And so I'm going to be a pretentious bitch and read into it. <laughs> anyway, I just I just think that the ambiguity is important because I think that we need to feel that sense of ambiguity going in. Because if we go in already thinking, well, duh, the dinosaurs are going to kill everyone. We should call this off. All of this is stupid. Every one of you deserves to die for going in here to begin with. That doesn't... That's not a good movie. Like, no, that's... but the... the, the... 
he dies there in my mind, and that's part, part the one of the central <laughs> themes of this movie is man messed with something he should not have messed with, and people are going to pay the consequence. They're going to pay for it with their lives. Man should not have intervened. Man and dinosaur were not meant to coexist. We might as well talk about that thing while we're at it, pivoting Ooh. sharply. Um, <laughs> hope you brought a glass of milk, cause shit's getting spicy. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm saying okay. We we've debated that one to death. Obviously, we we've seen both sides of it. The thing, one of the themes of this movie that I struggle with, and that I sometimes argue is not even the actual theme, but I'm never quite sure if it is or not, is the whole people shouldn't play God thing. Which is not a theme that I like. I'll come out and say it. Um, I have never been a fan of it because, to me, unless you are an explicitly religious person who actually believes in a god that created and maybe runs the world, there is no reason that you should have this theory of, oh, man shouldn't, you know, get involved with this kind of thing. I don't think that's... I know I said that a minute ago. I don't think that's the theme. The theme, at least that's not the way. I'm not, not saying way... that it is. I'm saying that I... that's a theme that a lot of people have gotten from it. Right, and that's not what Malcolm says. Malcolm's I'm problem talking about Malcolm because I'm he explicitly that... discusses this point at the dinner scene. Right. He, I'm... he. I'm using Malcolm's words to, I guess, support what you're trying to say, and that. He doesn't say that, you know, man shouldn't play God. He's saying your people are playing with something that they have no respect for. Right. Um, it, I don't disagree with that. I'm aware that he says that, and I agree with it. I'm just saying that, like, the movie as a whole, you could argue, and people have argued, has this theme. That, like, I, has science gone too far? I don't... I, uh, gonna gonna throw in gonna throw in my two cents real quick uh i think it is more of a are we are are we making scientific discoveries for the benefit of mankind and scientific curiosity or are we making scientific discoveries for profit and i think that's one of the points uh like like caleb says malcolm even says it they're playing with something they don't respect they don't respect what they're doing for the scientific community they're like hey we know how to clone dinosaurs. How do we immediately make money off of it? No, I agree. And I think that that is actually the theme. But it seems that in the cultural consciousness, and to be fair, like there are some lines that I can't quote verbatim, but that are definitely there that seem to support the whole like, oh, like science shouldn't go too far and man shouldn't play God and like engineer stuff and whatever. And, you know, like should, we shouldn't get too high on our own abilities or whatever like i i think that that has been a theme in movies like this and could arguably be a theme in this one now i don't because i love this movie and i will defend it i don't think that it really is but i think the the possibility of reading it that way is there it could easily be construed that way by someone who wasn't paying super close attention yeah and 
I don't know. I, I just, I've always kind of struggled with that one because it's like, unless you're approaching it from a, from a distinctly religious standpoint, it doesn't make sense to make that argument because it's like, well, it's not that people shouldn't interfere with natural processes. It's that we shouldn't interfere with natural processes in a way that could cause harm. We shouldn't do it carelessly. Right. And it is done carelessly and it is done with the idea of, but even then, see, I was about to say with the idea of making a profit, but that's not really Hammond's goal. Right. His goal is just to provide something to people. So that's where I that's where I trip up with the capitalistic analysis. It's like I want to say the movie's about how exploiting the natural world for materialistic gain is bad, but that's not what he's trying to do. So it's uh, like so what do we get from that? It's because Hammond isn't the villain of the movie. Uh uh Nedry and the people he's working with are and they're the ones who want this discovery for profit and that's why everything goes wrong nothing that is done uh by hammond directly is that's true the reason anything goes wrong again except for that opening scene which throws a wrench into the whole philosophy yes (laughs) but of course even then it's like every time i don't know every time they talk about the dinosaurs as this like unknowable chaotic force i kind of have to laugh because i'm like there are plenty of large scary potentially dangerous animals that we are more than capable of and every day people interact with them like people who know what they're doing obviously and are are not killed by them because they're not stupid about it and we have adapted to it and we know what to expect of them and like this the exact same could be done with dinosaurs like there is no animal that has ever existed that is too uncontrollable for for human technology and human ingenuity to find a way around so i always found that a little funny uh that they they talk about it like oh the, it's it's too much for us to control it's like well no you just have to do it the right way and that's the problem is that it doesn't get done the right way yeah and i i mean also because it's on the cutting edge of scientific discovery and you know there's always going to be that that trial and error period and you know and I do really have to give it to this movie for um, opening the door to this conversation within the film itself. That that lunch scene that we've already uh, discussed is so good. I love a scene where the characters are sitting around having a conversation about <laughs> their ethics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, about, about scientific ethics. Um, right, and it's really good. And And I don't think once again, I don't think personally that it ever verges into man was not meant to play God territory. Um, because I think if it did, I would find that kind of distasteful. I don't think that it does. I just think you could make the argument that it yeah. does if you wanted to. And technology and the use or misuse thereof of you know scientific progress is a, an undercurrent through most of Michael Crichton's stories. Um, Westworld. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And timeline and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the, that's the thing, like, technology, like, the specter of technology as as, as a, a source of potential chaos and, and terror is something that can be used to great effect, but it, but it has to 
not has to it it should be used in a way that is conscious of i don't know how to end that sentence oh god my thoughts um it it, it shouldn't be used in a way that is like technology in itself is a bad thing because i i don't personally believe that that's ever true i think it is it can only be true in in the capacity of people can use it in a bad way like because of human error and in a lot of cases because of um, capitalistic greed that they can be used for exploitation but and that's kind of like where not to go off on a tangent but like black mirror the show is some is a show that i really like and i think sometimes does this well and sometimes doesn't <laughs> because it's an anthology show and like and the stories are all different and and approach different angles sometimes it's very good and is like here's a cool technology that people used in a bad way because people suck like yeah. and and I then mean, other times it's like what if kids, too much phone yeah you kids watch too much bad. TV. yeah like, <laughs> mostly it is in the former i think occasionally it can verge on the latter but i think it's very important for these kinds of stories that are about kind of the terrors of new technologies whether real or fictional to to distinguish between too much technology bad which in my opinion, is an extremely regressive idea that, that we don't really need perpetuated versus technology is always progressing, new things are always coming about, and if we aren't careful, people can use them in the wrong way or the wrong people can get their hands on them. And because of human error, because of, of human cruelty, it can be used in a way that we don't want. Um <laughs> And of course, in the case of Jurassic Park, it, it's not—it's definitely not cruelty. It's just human carelessness in some very basic ways, um, and even that can set a can set a chain of events in motion that goes so far beyond what anyone's intention was. Right. Um, yeah. So, technology good, capitalism bad. We merely must figure out how to reconcile these things. <laughs> uh, also, dinosaurs good. Just or dinosaurs bad. No, dinosaurs good. <laughs> dinosaurs good. Just don't, just don't be stupid about them. You know. Uh, shifting gears entirely while we're on the topic of technology, good dinosaurs good. The <laughs> dinosaurs look fucking great in this. Oh movie. yes, <laughs> yes, uh, extremely so. Um, for the early 90s damn uh, my my significant other uh, has has seen uh, both of these films but not uh, recently not since she was a kid and uh, she di she didn't rewatch this one with me but she rewatched part of Jaws and we're talking about the shark and uh, as much as I love the shark Bruce doesn't look the best it's uh, the jaw it's the no. jawline you can see the, the jaw hinge uh, it is other the than that, audio animatronicist shark to ever. I thought it looked pretty good and pretty convincing. It's well, just the hinge on the jaw that gets me. Again, he did a good job of making it scarce. Um, the most you see of the shark is when it's eating Quint. Uh, yeah, I mean the, uh, the the for the fact that it wasn't animatronic is probably largely to, has a lot to do with the fact that you see so little of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, we were talking, and I, I was kind of like making fun of the shark uh, that I love. 
And she was like, well, it can't be too much better in Jurassic Park. And I was like, hold on, madam. <laughs> do you see this Triceratops? No, These things Park. look better than most things do now. <laughs> oh, yeah. This just... They look so real. Yeah, the the brachiosaurus can look a little rough in a couple shots, um, uh, but you know that's because they're in like full screen, yeah, full broad sunlight. Daylight, it, but now the T Rex, no water for texture mm-hmm. like in the rain scene. Yeah, dark scenes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, up close when they can use the Damn, puppets. That T Rex looks... looks fucking crisp. So <laughs> good. I know it. Right, and it's like, and it has that kind of slimy, dirty touchable quality that mm. that is missing i guess in in cgi renderings which i mean don't get me wrong i have no problem with with cgi i think like so much of what we have in film now would not be possible without it it's just there there it's it's the balance that you need you know the, the and and this one like really shows like the the tan tangibility tangibility of of the practical effects so good. So um, good. But the dinosaurs don't have feathers. Shut up, dork. They explain that in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> no one cares. Dinosaur look cool. Be super scaly and big. I think that, what, what was... Did they have an explanation for it in the movie? Uh, it, it's... Uh, I mean, you can no prize explain it by that... Uh, the the uh, injection of amphibian DNA uh, uh-huh. made them featherless. That's how I've read it. As soon as I... As soon as I rewatched Jurassic Park after finding out that dinosaurs are supposed to have feathers, I was like, okay, yeah, that reads. I, I remember reading, I heard something, either I read it in like the original Jurassic Park book or it was a throwaway line in Jurassic World and I'm quoting Jurassic World right now. Um, there's something in the back of my brain where someone's like, oh, why don't the dinosaurs have feathers? And someone responds, because the general public doesn't expect them to have feathers. Yeah. Um, it so is that's a work why. of fiction. <laughs> um, no, and I mean, like, that's an excuse for, like, like in the park. It's like, that's that's why we have mm. them look like this is because the public doesn't expect them to have feathers. Yes. I don't know where I'm remembering that from. If anyone is hearing this and knows what I'm talking about, please shoot me a message. Yeah. <laughs> huh. uh, no, I, I, I did, like, I did, like, the scientific explanations like uh like as i said you can read into it that's why they're featherless but also that's how they're able to start reproducing is the type of frog that they used uh, the dna from can change what are the odds right (laughs) which once i found that out i was like that seems like an oversight that seems like someone should have known (laughs) someone would have known that be like hey the fact that we're deliberately creating all of these animals to be female so they can't reproduce, and we deliberately picked this one animal to gene splice them with, but we somehow, our scientists just didn't notice this extremely <laughs> and, uh, important and detail. And this just escapes you. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. totally, that's a job that we're like, hey, look at all of these frogs. And tell us which one fits these criteria. And some interns sitting there snacking on a PB&J. Well, why <laughs> use frogs? Why not use chicken DNA or something to fill in the gaps? Why not use something that it's actually closely related to? Uh, because, Caleb, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, ribbit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Justin. That's a good point. <laughs> I've been destroyed by facts and logic. Oh my god. <laughs> now consider for the sake of argument, ribbit. 
That seems like as good a place as any to... Yeah, we could go on forever about this movie, but we will not because much like the dinosaurs, we had our turn and, and nature... Selected, selected us. Selected us for extinction. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so... Yeah, all right, all right, all right. Um, final thoughts, anyone? Uh, Steven Spielberg, great director. Good way to open uh, Autour April. Um, mm-hmm. And these movies rule. I learned from this I need to watch a lot more of Spielberg's filmography because I really haven't seen that much of it. Like, I've definitely seen a few because there's, like, a lot, but I haven't seen, like, a lot of it. So I definitely need to get in there and I need to see how much of them are are, are concentrated on the idea of 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 fatherhood and of, yeah. of the unknowability of <laughs> scientific discovery. Uh, Jaws and Jurassic Park is definitely a more one to one double feature for his filmography than like yeah. Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Also, a movie I need to watch, but I never feel that I'm in quite the right headspace to watch it, so I never get around to it. You know what I mean? Maybe <sighs> too. All right. Okay. Well, that's super fun note. Uh, um, my name's Caleb. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at actual underscore Caleb. My name's Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at Steph has no name and on Letterboxd at Raise Left Boob. My name's Justin. You can find me on most social media at Blame It on Butler, and you can find this show on Twitter at Sounds Familiar. All right. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time. I love you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show. Be sure to check the episode description for any links we may have included related to this week's episode. You can find us online on Twitter and Instagram at SoundsFamiliar. If you'd like to get in contact with us, drop us a line at SoundsFamiliar at gmail.com. We'd like to thank our friend Chelsea for our logo. Check her out on Instagram at ChelseaBHDesigns. We'd also like to thank Shane Quick for our theme music. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to tune in every Thursday for new episodes. We'll see you next time on Sounds Familiar.